0: Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney, Eric Veith.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin.
2: I'm
3: John Simon.
2: So we are continuing our discussion about product liability cases in our prior discussions, we we kind of talked about the general nature of such cases and the framework and the importance of various issues. And what we are going to pick up on now is talking about formal discovery done in the case. That's going to necessarily involve getting back into some of the some of the important issues you need to get get into with discovery that we've talked about already, but we're going to try to get into more detail here. Interrogatories, requests for production. A method we use a lot, maybe more than others, is requests for admissions at the appropriate times, and then including corporate rep depot. So I think the first thing we want to say is the importance of your pleadings in the formal discovery process, because the scope of your pleadings dictates the scope of your discovery. So for example, if you think at the outset that your case is just a design defect case, And don't even consider that there might not be a manufacturing issue so you don't plead it. You're going to have great difficulty trying to get information about the manufacturing process that may turn up that you have a manufacturing issue. So make sure your pleadings are pled broadly enough that it allows discovery and all the issues you need to get into like design, testing, manufacturing process, inspection, whether there's adequate or inadequate policies or procedures or whether they were followed things like that so that you can get the discovery yeah, out. I of think
3: sense. even with the design claim part of the design process involves testing and prototypes and you know feedback from from products you've already sold and you know kind of fast forward and see yourself you know in in court standing and before the judge and you're asking for testing and the question is going to be well how is that relevant? And guess what guess what your answer needs to be? You got to point out in the petition That's or paragraph
2: a. We've
3: asked, we've, we've alleged that the, the the testing was inadequate. So it does. it. You, you know, your pleadings will, will determine to a large extent the, the nature and the scope of the discovery you're able to complete.
2: And, you know, one of the first things we all do after we filed the complaint or as a defendant after you've answered it is both sides serve each other formal discovery, which is typically just interrogatories and requests for production. Sometimes there might be some initial requests for admissions. For example, just to confirm you've named the right defendant, that they designed it or manufactured it, etc. But you're probably asking that in interrogatories too. Pay close attention in your jurisdiction for some types of cases. If there's form interrogatories, you have
3: to use those. In my experience, that doesn't typically exist in a product case. You know, what I like to do is pin down not just that you have the right defendant, but with, with most products, there are component part manufacturers, cars especially. There may be four or five different entities involved in, you know, the, the product that you're talking about. You've got sellers, you've got distributors. You know, under a product liability theory, they're, they're all potential defendants. I would describe it as, you know, the confirm the entity's relationship to the product. Yeah. Okay, anybody that's got any relationship to that product. Who sold it? Who marketed it? And a lot of times, too, they're outside testing companies. It isn't the company that actually made the product and ends up selling it that tested it. A lot of cases that we get, you know, we, we start with the seller, and and you know, and, and then we and, work our way right, back. Right, exactly. Right. You know, something they bought. Sometimes you don't know the
2: designer is right. different than the seller, and, or the manufacturer is different than the
3: seller. You know, so you you know, you buy stuff or an online product. You know, somebody buys it online. And you find out, well, there's an American distributor. There's that's, that's a whole other, you know, area of foreign manufacturers. Yeah.
2: and it, with foreign manufacturers, oftentimes is when you see a different company that designed it, and then there's a different company that manufactured it that's in the states, and then a different distributor who sold it. So keep in mind, formal discoveries, traditional interrogatories, requests for production. You may do requests for admissions. We'll get to corporate reps later. But what we're going to do is go to kind of a discovery checklist that John has created for product liability cases. Keep in mind what we're talking about. You may be incorporating asking about these things in interrogatories or request for production or both. And the first we've talked about a little bit is information about the defendant, making sure you understand the nature and scope of their business, what type of legal entity they are. We always ask for an organizational chart, locations of offices and production facilities. Sometimes you don't really get that full information till a corporate rep depot when you can ask somebody if there's fictitious names, if they've been named properly, predecessors and successors, those kinds of things so you make sure you know everything you do about you need to about the defendant you've named.
3: Yeah, and then I would say the next thing is what we were just talking about the relationship of the defendant to the product. Did they manufacture it? Did they sell it? Did they transfer it? Did they distribute it? Did they design it? Are they the ones that tested it? You know, are there or are their are there assignments or their leasing agreements, you really need to nail that down. Yeah. I mean, if you don't have all the
2: right defendants, you need to get them in sooner rather than later. I mean, if you're in federal court or depending where you are, you may have deadlines to name additional parties. Even if you don't, if you do it later, you're probably compromising your trial date. So try to get all the right defendants in as soon as you can so that you can get all the discovery you need to have and have all the right all the right people in the case. One of the other topics we always try to cover is sales information, not just sales information about the particular product at issue, meaning any sales documents from your client buying it or an original purchaser buying it from whoever sold it, but sales volume, profits and market share. You may not be able to get into some of that stuff until later in the case once you're able to establish evidence to support a punitive damages claim, but always keep it in mind. I ask for it in the beginning, just so it's already asked for, so that when we get to a point where I think I have enough evidence to say, okay, judge, I have the punitive damages claim pled. Now here's the evidence that shows I'm likely to submit. And, on and it. this discovery's already been submitted. Already been submitted. Out. I shouldn't have to wait 30 more
3: days to send it and get it. Like give me the information. And I think that you know the next category that we always include in our written discovery is information, obviously, about the product. You know, identify the product. By that I mean you know, do they have different models? Make uh, sure you know your model, right. your part, and serial number. You know, the defendant's manner of identifying. How, the, how do they identify it? How do they label it? The date, the date it was designed, the date it was manufactured, the date it was sold. Who designed it? Get those design documents, right? Component part manufacturers. Yeah. Like if you have a,
2: if you have a car case, right, you may find out there's a particular part of that car that was designed and manufactured by a different company, and you didn't ask the right questions. And late in the case, you're finding out they're saying you don't have the right defendant, or somebody that has to be third partyed in. So try to get that right away.
1: We're we're just digging in, and I can already hear the burdensome and harassing objections to all this. Do one of you want to give a word about how how you?
2: prevent
3: that. Well, yeah, that. I can, you know, if, if they're willing to stipulate the liability in the case, we can afford all of <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or
2: stipulate right away that that we that this is the correct defendant responsible for all aspects of design, manufacturing, testing, inspection, sale. But, you know, we, we typically get objections to that kind of stuff and not straight answers either. And we're just trying to make sure an answer I usually have is, hey, I'm trying to figure out if you're not the right defendant to get the right people in here and you guys out of here you
3: should want to answer my question. Yeah, it's, you know, as we talked about in the last session, that product liability cases are a different animal. Building something from the ground up, you got to get into the entire life of the product, and the life of the product, in a lot of cases, extends over 10, 20 years, maybe, you know, decades, and they're, they're, they're different models, they're different designs, you know, there are competitors out there with, with you know, similar type mm-hmm. type products you've got an entire history of claims, you know, where other people have been hurt or injured on the product, whether it's a deer stand or a car or, you know, an electric hospital, but whatever it is. So, you know, you really need to be comprehensive and there's just, there's just no other way of going about it. It, is, it. It's very, very discovery intensive and it's incredibly document intensive. And you, you have to hit that
2: relentless pursuit of documents from the beginning because time and again, you you will find you will end up in a corporate rep depot or the other side's experts depots, and they start trying to claim things like, well, I mean, that was inspected or that was – there's been no other incidents or we tested this. And absent already having the documents that you're very familiar with to go to to see if what they're saying is right or wrong and contradict them, you're just kind of stuck there – Letting them say whatever they want, whether it's
3: true, yeah, or not. like pinning them down. One, one, it just comes to mind. Uh, other incidents, other similar incidents, is something that is always relevant in in a product case, a design, especially because you're really attacking the design, and they're all the same, and there are a bunch of them out there. Push this issue of other similar incidents, and you'll find out. I think early in the case, if you're if you're taking you know somebody, a corporate rep or somebody from the the defendant's deposition, and you start asking about that topic they don't want to give you anything. And what I do is kind of flip that around and say, okay, so you you don't, do you keep track of it? In other words, mm-hmm. uh, you, you have the ability, like Tim, like you were saying, that they're telling you, well, we don't know, we don't know, and what you want to do is if they're taking that position, pin them down that they don't keep track of it. So in other words, they're unable to come to court later and say, we don't know of any of these. You know, there are no other OSIs when the re- the reality is you know, you've testified under oath that you, no you make no effort. Exactly, you make no effort to go out and find them. You don't make no effort to see, you know, how often this has occurred. So, they're taking that position that they don't have any and they don't keep track of them. You want to be able to, you know, in court say, that this company has no idea how many of these are out there. And usually, when occurred. you do that,
2: they'll start changing their too. Then, right? then all of
3: a sudden, we keep. Well, we are, keep track but of they're them they're
2: not related, and like, well, then I get to do discovery on substantial similarity. Like we don't put the cart before the horse. And that's always a fight about prior incidents. We talked previously about what's relevant about prior incidents, depending on whether it's just a design defect claim or negligence claim or or punitives and stuff like that. But that's a fight you're going to have. So when I'm asking for other incidents in interrogatories, requests for production, in the corporate rep notice, I define it. So that they can't try to wiggle out and say we don't think that's substantially similar.
3: The next topic that we have on the list is our inspections of the product. We had an automotive product case. It was a post-collision fire, and it had to do with welds. It, and so the the it, the car had bad welds. You know we had we had exemplars. We had the welds examined. We were interested in not just the process. You know the 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 quality control process for welding, but more importantly. We had welds that visually would have been, you know, but picked up as defective by just a visual inspection. Mm-hmm. And so the issue was, you know, what is that process? It was on the frame of the vehicle, and we were asking questions about, you know, what does that look like? Who's involved in that? How does that? And, and at the end of the day, it was a person on an assembly line who literally spent less than 60 seconds with a frame of the vehicle at issue, the model frame. And there were something like, you know, 280 welds on the, you know, on the... On and the it passes plane. by um, yeah, right. well, one product well, every 15 Right. And I seconds. think it was one, one person was on one side, the other was on the yeah. other. But, you know, the whole idea that that's one person's going to look at, you know, 80 welds or 100 welds in 60 seconds and continue to do that on a shift for eight hours, you know, was just crazy. So, yeah, I mean,
2: you're going to get into inspections in the case... And I think what you're saying, John, is you need to not just ask to identify all inspections of the subject product by the defendant or anyone acting on their behalf because it can be a third-party company and then notes, memos, reports, photos, videos, or documents related to the inspection and any individuals or entities involved in the gathering of that information, but dig into – the details of like the policies of how the inspections right. and are done. Even
3: even to this, this amount of detail, it was not just the person on the line who's inspecting them, but they had other policies in place where they would randomly pull off one frame off the line, I think every once, maybe it was once a month or every two weeks, and they would stress test it and, and you know, do this other stuff. Yeah. But you really, you, you really need to know, you know, as I said, you know, with the product case, it, it could be a testing issue. It could be a design issue. It could be a, ma- it could be a material issue. or there changes made in the steel that was used? And we had, that in, you know, we had that in a lot of car cases. You know, there are different types of steel. There are different strengths. There's high-strength you know, high steel. There's the cheaper, you know, steel. You know, what is used? You could have a product with excessive corrosion, a, a, a rear underride guard, for instance. You know, ask questions about the life. of What's the life of the product, Right. You know, if they're going to come in and say, "Well, you know, this car was old," or this, this, so it's past you know, its expected right. life. Like, you know, what well, is, is, there, is there? you tell customers? Yeah, that? is there an expected life? Should they turn it in? Uh, you know, what's the average age of your product out there now? The, the other thing too, that's a great, great source of information, is the manual. You know, the owner's manual, operator's manual, it is an absolute wealth of information. And so that's kind of
2: a subcategory of the next big topic we have, chain of distribution and sale of subject and similar products. This touches on something we just talked about, identifying manufacturers, wholesalers, distributors, retailers, the structure of the chain distribution, prior and subsequent owners. But instructions, training, manuals, written materials provided at each step of that process in the chain include to the customer. Which can get into, like, your manual to the person doesn't say there's any particular life of the
3: product. Yeah, and, you know, warnings in the manuals are a good start because, you know, obviously they're, they're, they're acknowledging some risk of whatever the risk is. And then the next question is, okay, you got a warning about it, but what did you do to design it out? You know, Yeah. Uh, what did you do in, in, in terms of testing? Under the law in most states, you know, misuse of a product is not a defense. As long as it's, and a it's foreseeable, foreseeable right? It's a foreseeable misuse. So that's a whole other area of discovery. You know, if you know, I'll give you a simple example, you know, a car rolls over, a car gets rear-ended, you know is is that is that foreseeable? In auto product cases, it isn't the accident. it's the you know, crashworthiness. It's how the vehicle mm-hmm. performed in the particular accident. And even even other products, and I'm trying to think of some other ones that are good examples of, you know, an allegation that somebody may be misusing the product, again, that's not a defense, provided that misuse is is reasonably foreseeable. And you got to start thinking and, and about okay, what kind of product is it, and however it was being used or allegedly misused. Is that something they know it's used right. that way? Did, did they know
2: about whether it? it's the intended use or not? Is it right. a foreseeable right. use?
1: John, you just brought something up. I I don't know the answer to this. I'm sure you do. Manufacturer says. We warned about it rather than designing it out. What, what's the law on that? I mean, it, it, I'm sure there's a lot of people that say, we'll just warn about everything and it'll out.
3: I think, you know, they're separate claims. And if you, if you sell a, you know, a, a defective and unreasonably dangerous product, warning or not, I mean, they can bring up the warning on comparative fault that you knew about it. But, you know. Uh, Under the law, a, a product can be
2: defectively designed because of a failure to warn. But a lot of that, Eric, really just gets into. It, it kind of gets into the subject of expert testimony, where you have the hierarchy, right? Like you got to try to design it out first. If you can't design it out, then you have to do your best to warn. I mean, the first thing
3: is you need to be able to. If you can design it out, and you don't, you know, you need to design it out if you can. Is is a way to put it? What are some What are some examples, Eric and Tim, of cases, product cases we've worked on where there was an alleged misuse of the product? You know, one area would be car cases. Yeah, that's very common.
2: I mean, there's an accident. Okay, well, you know there's going to be accidents. There was a drunk driver, right? But you know that happens all of the time, and all that really means is there was an accident. Well, I I handled
1: one. It was a camping incident where the
2: campers used a lantern in the tent to stay warm.
3: Yeah, carbon monoxide poisoning.
2: The boiler explosion case, you know, there was wear and tear on the pressurized vessel in that case we had like seven different defendants in that case if you recall and we'd sued the designer the manufacturer and then various maintenance people and the people that still owned the the vessel at the time and so there were defenses that were attempted to be made about like not proper water treatment being made or not proper repairs being made and so we we were ultimately able to get into yeah but these are like I know it's misuse, but it's foreseeable that those things are going to happen, which is why you have to, for example, have extra thickness on the vessel in the beginning to account for somebody potentially
3: not. Yeah, you know, the water. one that comes, we've done a lot of press cases, you know, press injuries where somebody's working with a press and, and they lose a finger or an arm. And and there's the, the classic example of... You, you took know, a guard off. There, or, or there's a big sign on the top of it that says you know, don't put your fingers under, under yeah. the press. And, you know, just by human nature, you're at that press eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, you know, you're putting pieces of, you know, steel or whatever it is you're putting under there. And it may be, you know, you're doing that three or 400 times in a, you know, a day and just human nature, you know, you're not always going to keep your hands out from under there. I mean, there are things that are going to come up or something gets stuck or whatever, and, and you it could just say,
2: happens they go well there's a warning not to do it so we don't expect it well let's look into that why do you know to put that warning there
3: because you know this is something yeah, that it, happens and, and it's foreseeable and, and you know what happens too a lot of times is you know the 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 defendant in a product case will take the position oh my gosh this is just so you know r- ridiculous and uh, you know it was the, the, it, this is something that shouldn't have been done and the product was being misused and then through the course of discovery, you find out that there's, you know, 180 other incidents, you know, where this happened. I had a, a multi-piece wheel case years ago, company that manufactured the multi-piece wheel. It's, it's an inherently dangerous product, period, in my opinion. And to, to sort of correct it, they came out with these, you know, warnings and charts that they would put up on the wall in entire, you know, shops saying you need to air it up in a cage, right? You need to put it in a cage. And you know, don't, don't do this, make sure you're doing this. And, you know, the whole point is, a client would be criticized for maybe airing it up, not in a cage, but then you find out it's happened, you know, a couple hundred times, or the question is, you know, you want to air it up in a cage, what, what happens when you get it out of the cage, right? It can still explosively separate. You got to put it on the, on the vehicle at some point. You can't leave it in the cage on the vehicle. Mm-hmm. But again, th- this is, we're just pointing out that this is, if you got a product case, and, and there's going to be some allegation of use or misuse or alleged misuse of the product. You have to deal with that, and to deal with it, you've got to direct some discovery. And the issue is this. What did the defendant know about their product? Knowledge so, of right. misuse and abuse. Yeah, yeah not right. not just their product internally, how they designed it or whatever, but what did they know about how their product is used or misused, right? right? And and that's And something... measures taken to prevent that misuse
2: right. and abuse, which they're now claiming is misuse and abuse. Warnings to correct or prevent
3: it. And as you said, Tim, the warnings, look at the warnings on the product because they're there because- They know that they, kind of thing they, can, happen. They can happen. Right, right. It's, you know they know that, that that can happen. Obviously, you're going to direct discovery
2: about the design, how the product at issue operates, the function of each component, the interrelationship of how each component functions. That's part of the design discovery. You wanna make sure you have a good understanding of all of that from the defendant, so that you're all on the same page. Or, if if not, your expert can a, can address those issues. Identify the model and product number of each each component of the product. Describe the role of each individually and with respect to one another. All considerations that
3: affected the design process, including efficiency. Cost. 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 So let me, you know, Tim, as you mentioned that, the people involved, I would, written discovery is, is, is limited, obviously. Yeah. And I think the best thing that, that you can get with written discovery and the thing you should focus on the most are two things. One is names and the other is documents. Correct. And, and not even just the documents themselves, but the, the, the process of, of, in other words, when you're talking to somebody or taking a deposition about a product being designed or tested or manufactured. What I do is I'll lay the groundwork with, you know, get somebody who, who's there to explain that process to you. And what you do is you say, let's go through the development, the design and development. How does that work? Who is involved in it? And then what documents are generated during the course of that process? So you really know what specific documents to ask for later in discovery. You really need to do discovery in, in these cases product cases. An ongoing. are ongoing. On, on, there are different levels of it. Yeah. You know, you need to do the general background stuff. I'll do that with, with the product, you know, or with the design claim, you know, who was involved in it? What was their involvement? Take me through the process. At this stage, you know, what, is it a prototype? What is it called? What, what reports are prepared? Is there, and then testing. Testing's another thing too. You know, take me through the process of testing. Who was involved in the testing of this product? Mm-hmm. How was it done? Where was it done? When was it done? And then the most important thing is, what documents are generated as a result or were generated as a result of that testing? I want the names of the document. You know Who gets copies of them? Were they kept? Who's the custodian of those records? So that you know you get done, again, I think a lot of the discovery initially is, who, names of people that you want to depose, and, and documents you want to request. Keep in mind this, you know, when you ask for topics and, and the, the defendant corporation is required to produce somebody to be able to address those topics. The, the tremendous benefit for the defense in, that, in this situation is they get to pick their, their witness, right? They get to pick who that witness is. And so, you know, if you got a good lawyer on the other side who's doing their job and has actually spent enough time, you know, the, the required time, they're going to have an outstanding witness i mean I, it boggles my mind whenever i see a corporate rep who's a bad witness you know i just don't get it yeah you know they have the opportunity to to you know pick who they want to present the reason i'm saying this is i will ask that corporate rep about that get the names of other people right because the corporate rep doesn't need to be the person who did the testing. They just need to be able to provide you with all of the information known to the company about the testing.
1: John and Tim, if we can go back one step, how often do you take a very early deposition just to ask the corporation, what documents do you have, what do you call them, where are they, just so you can be ready to fight those
2: discovery fights? Well, you've got to be careful because – I, it's kind of up in the air whether you can take more than one corporate rep. I mean it depends who your judge is, what jurisdiction you're, is, you're in. I, I'm not aware in most of a rule that says you only get one. But I, I like if you try to take a second one, you're going to be met with objections of we already did a corporate rep. So I really try to do as much of it as I can initially with the document requests, Eric, and then start – Picking around the edges with maybe other people before I get to the corporate rep. And this is why I try to include all these types of things in my initial document requests. If you get to the corporate rep and you're asking questions about to figure out if you got everything you want that's covered by the the, the broadly outlined discovery and you figure out you didn't with the corporate rep and you get the name of a witness and that you still need the documents, you have a much better chance of convincing the court they're going to have to produce another rep on this topic. I didn't have these documents. I, I did ask
3: for it. I didn't and, get it. You know the the benefit the the benefit of having the corporate rep is they're not allowed to say I don't know. Yeah. And and really, if you if you take the corporate rep too early in the case, and you really haven't flushed out all of the issues and sub issues and defenses and your response to those, what what your reply is going to be or what information you need, then you're just taking individual witnesses, and you know you know, you don't know what you're going to get. Okay, but. I, I agree with Tim. I like taking some depositions initially. I don't want the corporate rep to be the first deposition, but I want to take enough depositions that I sort of get the lay of the land. I, I'll take enough of them so that I feel comfortable that I understand how the company operates, how they're organized, what they've done in terms of testing or, or inspecting or designing the product. And then I'll, I'll usually follow up with the corporate rep and make sure in the corporate, in all, in all the depositions, get names. Names doesn't allow your opponent to pick who the witnesses are. You know, and, and again, I'm not saying just get names for the sake of getting names. I like asking this question, you know, who is most knowledgeable at the company about testing? Who is yeah. most knowledgeable about the design of this particular model? Who is most knowledgeable about the marketing and sales of this of this model? And, you know, you'll, you won't get one name necessarily, but you'll get two or three. Mm-hmm. And what, what happens too is I'll notice all three of them up and the other side will, you know, say, no, it's it's this one, not that one. And I'll take the ones that they don't want to. On and sometimes, of. Eric, in, in a
2: direct response to your question, I, I might try to take a custodian of records and they'll go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, this isn't a mal case. What do you do? Like, well, these are records that I need. And I want a person who is the custodian of the corporate records to tell me I have them all. That's different than a person who's going to testify about the contents of that, them. That's what I was getting
1: at. Yeah. The, these custodian of records subpoenas are, are requests. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a corporate rep carve-out yeah. in a way. And they're often honored. They'll show up with somebody yeah, who might talk I mean, about this. Mean, a lot of
2: time. times they show up with somebody who has no idea if you have all of the records, but then you deal with that. Yeah. There is great importance in trying to make sure you've covered all the types of things you're going to talk to these witnesses and corporate reps about with your initial written discovery. You're going to have a lot more document requests, in my experience, than you are in a, but One of the parts about product design that we haven't really talked about is alternative designs. You want to both have them identify, and I do this in an interrogatory, but you're going to cover it in a corporate rep too, and you're going to ask for documents about it. Alternative designs considered and either rejected or adopted at any time prior to the date of the occurrence and all related documents, and reasons why, if it was rejected, that it was. And then get blueprint drawings, models, schematics, prototypes, about your model, similar models, alternative designs that were considered and rejected, cost benefit studies performed and related documents about alternative
3: yeah, designs. And that's the key thing I think Tim is, you know, there's not a single decision that is made that is about in money. The process, it is not about money. Every decision that is made includes money. And you know, I mean it should be. It should include money. I mean it's it's a product they're they're making it to sell for a profit and so the cost is and will be considered. You know, it just you need to you need to really hone in on that because if you're talking about a safety device, you know, that costs thirty bucks on a you know on a you know two thousand dollar product, you know, there's an issue there, right? Yeah. If you know if there's if you're talking about you know a hundred dollar device on a on an automobile, that you know a thirty forty thousand dollar car, that that becomes an issue. But just remember that that you know. Nothing happens randomly in the design and manufacture of a product. It's thought out or at least it should be and it's well documented. You know, it's not like somebody just sits in the office and says, "Hey, let's look what I drew up. Let's let's see how this works." There is documentation of every single step depending on the product. You should have, you know, a, a design phase, a manufacturing phase, a testing phase, a sale phase and and post sale you know the post sale stuff is is really why you end up getting the cases you know where all of a sudden you know people are beginning to get hurt and it's the same it's the same you know problem you know again and again and that's usually a, a, an excellent indication that you've got a defective design if it's something that happens over and over again this,
1: this list is comprehensive we're just getting started but i'm wondering how often you're stymied by court limits on numbers of request for production.
2: Well, I mean, a lot of times you might, you're limited on court limits on number of interrogatories. I'm not familiar with many jurisdictions that have limits on numbers of requests for production, which is why, you know, you may want to ask corresponding interrogatories for a lot of these things that involve documents, but but you can't, you know? And that's why they end up being, you're asking for the documents and then they end up being topics in the corporate rep.
1: So that ends this episode, part one, of building a strong foundation discovery,
3: and a product liability case. This is Eric Veef. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. We'll see you next time.
0: The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. At The Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.